I have known Afghan women to be some of the strongest, most resilient women on the planet. So if there is any place in you that feels called to help, know that it will not go wasted in this situation. And these women and girls, they are rising up. And it's taking, to me, an immense amount of bravery to, to protest in front of the Taliban and to leave without a burqa and to demand to go to school. I mean, this is beyond courageous. So knowing that they are putting their lives at risk for what they believe in, um, may we be courageous enough to support them. I believe that what we do as women in the privacy of our own minds is the single greatest determinant of our lives. I'm Emma Title, and you are listening to the Women Today podcast, where we are unpacking and investigating the new female psychology. I am a psychotherapist, coach, and teacher who is passionate about women's internal and external freedoms. You are in the right place if you want to hear in-depth stories about women's lives. On this show, we dig deep into the minds and hearts of women to understand what it really takes to heal, to grow, and to experience psychological freedom so that we can create lives of authenticity, fulfillment, and contribution. This is a place to receive nourishment, inspiration, and guidance as we continue to show up for the complexity and nuance of our lives as women. I'm so glad that you're here, and let's get started with today's episode. Hi, and welcome back everyone to another episode of the Women Today podcast. I am your host, Emma Title, and I am thrilled to be back with you all after a two-month hiatus from recording this podcast. If you are new here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. And if you're a returning listener, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for participating in this community. And most importantly, thank you for caring about your inner life and development and psychological evolution as a woman. It really is so important and so impactful. So thank you for taking the time to invest in yourself. For those of you who have been listening and reading my newsletter, I am just coming out of five months of pretty intense creative chaos and transition. My family last spring sold, bought, and embarked on a major remodel project of a new home. And although it has been incredibly fun and positive and exciting, it has also caused a lot of upheaval and sort of rearrangement and disorganization in my life. And so I'm thrilled to be back here now able to recommit, reinvest in the podcast and to connect with you all on a more regular basis. So Before I introduce today's guest to you all, who is really a powerhouse and an inspiration, she taught me so much. I wanted to just request that if you haven't already, please leave a rating and a review. The ratings and the reviews on podcasts, if you don't know this, what they do is they make it easier for other people to find the podcast. So by taking just one minute of your time to leave a review for the Women Today podcast on Apple Podcasts, what you're doing is you're making it that much more 
easy for women around the world to access this kind of information, education, inspiration, and nourishment. I'll read an example that came in recently from AM Cayman. She wrote, I love tuning in regularly when I need to feel a sense of community and connection with wise women. Emma seems to know just the right question to ask to guide her guests to reveal insights that I most need to hear to forge ahead with my day. Thank you, Emma. Thank you so much, AM Cayman. For those of you, you know, who maybe didn't listen to some of the earlier episodes, this podcast was really created out of my desire to be able to reach and impact more women. I have made a career for myself as a psychotherapist and a coach, but very often in my quieter, more reflective moments, even though I love my work and I love and I feel honored to be able to work with the women that I talk to every single day, there's always this voice in the back of my mind, like, am I doing enough? Am I giving enough? Am I contributing enough given the amount of you know, resource and education and information that I feel very privileged to have access to. And so one of the big reasons why this podcast came to life is because this is a medium where I can reach more women than I can in my one-on-one practice. And I can also give freely. I can give information, tools, resources, highlight voices that otherwise I can't really do in other ways in my career. And so today, this episode is very near and dear to my heart because I imagine like many of you over the last couple of months, you know, as we've been watching the unfolding of what's been going on in Afghanistan, there can be a real feeling of heartbreak and confusion and rage and a not knowing of what to do or how to contribute. And so I feel incredibly grateful. I want to give a shout out to Melissa Duell a wonderful podcast listener and community member who reached out to me and say, you've got to have Fittishta on your podcast. So thank you, Melissa. And that's also an invitation. If you ever want to hear someone on the show, think that there would be a good connection, please email me at emma at emmatitle.com and make the connection. I would love to have your input and ideas, and I would love to use the wider web of women here to create the best interviews and content possible that really feels valuable to you all. So without further ado, Fittishta Ramsey is a sought-after thought leader with over 20 years of experience specializing in shadow work, effective communication, and authentic relating through conflict. Under the direct guidance of Debbie Ford, the CEO and founder of the Ford Institute, Fittishta crafted her unique coaching methodology integrating shadow work, neuroscience, and trauma healing. Fittishta was born in Kabul, Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion. She and her family were forced to flee through a smuggling route in Pakistan. There, Fittishta and her parents waited 14 months for sponsorship and received political asylum from the U.S. Her journey from war baby to certified coach now helps people find their voice and live a fully expressed life. She is also an international recording artist and a socially conscious songwriter who brings some of what is going on in her homeland to light in her songs. I cannot tell you how impacted I was by this conversation. I had tears multiple times. I learned things that I did not know previously. I felt so moved and grateful for Fittishda's generosity and the way that she's using her voice to try to speak up for the Afghan people, specifically Afghan women and girls right now. 
So please listen to this one. You will not regret it. And also please listen to the calls to action. They will also be, you know, in the show notes underneath this episode, wherever you're listening to it, but please strongly consider not just listening, but actually doing something to contribute. I have been challenging myself to take actions and to send money and to do the acts that I feel like I'm capable of doing in my integrity at this moment in my life. And I would ask all of us who are here, who have the fortune and the privilege to listen to Fittishta's story, to really consider what we might do to try to support Afghan women and girls, particularly as you know the weeks go on, the days go on, it's not as hot in the news cycle perhaps, but there are still real people, real humans on the other side who are needing as much support as they can possibly get right now. All right, thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Welcome, Fittishta. I'm so happy that you're here with us today on the Women Today podcast. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. It's an honor. Yeah, it's it's such an honor to have you here. And before we say anything or go anywhere, I just really want to thank you for your willingness to, you know, share your voice and to be heard and known in a more public arena on this podcast given the very raw and real situation going on in Afghanistan as we speak. Mm, Thank you. I feel really seen and considered in that reflection, uh, knowing that, you know, as we spoke right before, just there's grief. There's a lot of grief and it continues to be transmuted into action for me. So I'm trusting that. Yeah. And that grief makes so much sense and, there's so much space for that here as we navigate our conversation. I know that the women who listen to this podcast, they are eager to hear the real and the true. And so please don't hesitate, you know, to be transparent about where you're at. Thank you. Yeah. I think what I had shared with you was just the awareness that, um, you know, musicians are being, threatened right now. And that was what I woke up to was a folk musician uh, who sings about the homeland being executed by the Taliban and just thinking, oh my gosh, how do we, how do we hold this? You know? Yeah. How, how are you holding this? Mm, Honestly, I mean, my grief quickly turns into what I call fierce love. Uh, it's a, a love that wants to protect and wants to fight for what's sacred. So I'm learning to quickly harness that. And, um, and it's still really hard. You know, I'm, I'm depleted and I'm, I know many activist friends who are going through this time without sleep and who are feeling the urgency and it's, it's a true urgency. So it's my world is grieve, kick ass, rest, repeat right now. Um, and, and that kicking ass is really coming from that fierce love, that place that's like not on my watch. We're not doing this like this again. Uh, and, and that every life does matter. 
Yeah. I have chills and tears as you say that. Um, yeah, not on my watch and every life matters. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you're resting, you know, that resting is a part of that sequence for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's the long game, right? It's sustainable activism is I can, I know how to go, go, go and collapse. Um, and I certainly did that in my twenties and thirties and I can get away with less, let's say now. Mm -hmm. Um, and just a maturity and an awareness that this is going to be for months, if not years to come. So how, how do I do this in a way that I remain healthy and well? Because activists, we need them to remain healthy and well to continue. Yeah. I love that you're a part of that conversation. And I mm-hmm. feel like that is, that is so much like this generation and new wave of activism is, is how can it be sustainable? And do you have colleagues, you know, allies, people who are of a similar mindset that you're connected to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a digital network of renegades right now who are mobilizing who are doing the work of visas, who are evacuating, who are um, just supporting this massive effort. It's really humans with a conscience Mm -hmm. who are in this digital network together. You know, who do you know over here that can help with this? Who do you know over there that can help with this? I mean, it is its own um, underground movement in this digital age. Mm. Yeah. And incredible people, incredibly um, heart-centered people. That's really what's making the difference right now. It's amazing to hear about. And I, as we go on today, I definitely want to hear more about that. And before we go further, you know, into understanding what's going on and your perspectives around the situation in Afghanistan before we go into that, I'd love to actually start out by hearing about your personal story and, you know, the type of context and location and family that you were born into and, and how it was that you've ended up now in the United States and, and what your life looks like now. Yeah. Thank you so much for your curiosity there. I appreciate that question. Um, yeah, I was born in Kabul, Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion And that was roughly 78 to 87, I believe, is when the Soviets left. So those first years, um, you know, my family was experiencing tanks in the streets, soldiers, curfews, violence. And my parents were university kids. You know, they were learning and being educated and quite free. This would be, I would say, the 60s, 60s and 70s. Um, You know, my mom wore a miniskirt, had her string of pearls, went to school, got on the back of my dad's motorcycle. He was a musician. Um, You know, some of his brothers and cousins would go on their motorcycles with their instruments on the back and go hang out with like the hippies that were coming in from London with (laughs) their acoustic guitars, right? And try to figure out how do I bring my tabla in with this guitar. And like they were living a pretty um, free and uh, golden life at that time. So to have all of that sort of be shadowed by communism, 
the idea that either you convert or you get imprisoned, right? That was happening in the Soviet times. And if you were at all a revolutionary in speaking up, um, as my mother was, you were put on lists, just the same as what's happening now. It was just on a Soviet list. And my father, you know, had friends who got called at lunchtime at his job and didn't come back to work ever. So they, they were sensing it was going to be a matter of time before they were found or put on lists or um, called in, for lack of a better word. So that's, I think I was two when they decided, okay, we've got to get out of here. So can I just clarify when someone gets called or never comes back to work, what, what was happening? What, like, can you break that down for us? Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the two possibilities were they were imprisoned or they were killed. Um, Soviets were very, you had one option, which was to convert to communism and then spy on your family or choose to advocate for what you believe in and and be either killed or put in prison. And that was pretty much uh, what was happening to everyone in the country at that time. And I think a lot of people ended up for no real reason uh, in prison for decades. Wow. At least one of my cousins, I'm sorry, one of my uncles um, had that happen to him. And I don't know how long he was in there, but it was definitely years in prison for not choosing to convert. Wow. Okay. And so you, so you were about two and your parents are young adults, young parents, and they see this going on. It's happening all the time and they know it's just a matter of time. Exactly. Yeah. And my father um, took out what would be essentially his 401k at the time. Um, I would say roughly eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 because you had to be privileged to get smuggled out. You had to have the means to hand your money to a smuggler and walk through the eight days, eight nights of journeying to another country kind of under under, um, the shadows, right, of night. And um, that's the only way people could get out. So a lot of the people that left the country were the scientists, the teachers, the accountants, the, the folks who had that kind of money to leave. Mm-hmm. And so is that what your family ended up choosing? Yes. I mean, you're handing your money to a smuggler without any real guarantees. And the path to Pakistan was, I think, supposed to be like a day or two. And it turned out to be like eight days for us to get there. Um, and that's, you know on buses, sometimes on foot, sometimes in hiding. Um, There was a situation where, you know, for my parents, they had to look like they weren't from the capital because they really weren't letting educated people leave the country. At this point, this would have been like early Mujahideen Taliban times. Um, So my father 
grew a beard for the first time in his life and wore much more provincial attire. And my mom, for the first time in her life, you know, got a burqa and put me in sort of like more tribal baby wear mm-hmm. um, so that we looked like we were villagers going to a wedding instead of Kabbalites uh, leading the country. Um, that was a, we, we had to make that distinction. And do you have memory of this journey of going to Pakistan or was this before conscious memory? I think I have body memory as it relates to, you know, what's stored in the body as it relates to certain fears. Mm-hmm. Um, as it relates to the journey, I think it's the stories I've been told have created a kind of conscious memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the, the awareness that that's what my parents as a young married couple with a young baby went through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have the fear, like I can feel certain things in my body come up that are before, you know, we would be observant and older and have memories. Yeah. Wow. I am just sitting with the reality of what, of what that would have been like and the terror of getting caught in trying to leave and what that would have meant. And, and so your family arrived safely to Pakistan. Yeah, we did. And, you know, my father found us a place to live and my parents taught English. You know, my mom was uh, teaching English at the university when we had left. And the irony is when you're a refugee in another country, you don't have work papers, so you can't legally work, but you have to pay rent, right? You have to eat. And so my parents would secretly teach English to other Afghan refugees who had hopes of coming to the U.S. so that they would be at least one step ahead when they landed here. And that's how they took care of us, along with the savings that um, they left with. I'm just struck by how resilient and resourceful your parents were. And it's so good to hear the stories of that because I imagine so many different stories like that are going on right now of how people are figuring it out or using all of their ingenuity to survive and to figure out how to create situations that are going to work for themselves and their families. Absolutely. And yeah, that is the hope, you know, humans are resourceful and can find their way as long as they're given a way. Right. And I think for my parents, um, when I asked them why they left, they said it had gotten way too unsafe and uncomfortable to stay. And that was enough for them to decide we'll figure it out anywhere else. You know, and my father would go every week to the visa office to see if we had been sponsored. Right. So just what's happening now of asking people to help sponsor and help with visas, it matters because my dad went week after week for 14 months until we found out we had been sponsored by the U.S. to get to, to have political asylum um, here. And so it really, that's when I say every life matters because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't people with a conscience doing that work. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I feel really impacted hearing that because it, it brings it 
so much into the human and the concrete, you know, to, and I think that's what's required right now is to be able to imagine ourselves on the other end. And like you're saying, what it, what it really would mean for an individual or for a family, if those of us who are living in more privileged circumstances could do actions to support that on this end. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm feeling so touched because I'm hearing the emotion in your voice and really appreciating your heart, the big loving heart I sense on the line. Who gets this? You know, when people say, oh, I only have $20, right? All I can really do is repost your post or whatever. It's like, oh my gosh, nothing is too small right now because it's everyone bringing their bucket to the fire. And I really, I believe that it really matters. I'm trying not to curse here <laughs> because it's okay to curse. <laughs> it really fucking matters. That little girl that I was, it really fucking mattered that we get a home, that we be helped, that we um, could start a new life. So the safety of that. And I think we were uh, sponsored by a Baptist church in Virginia. So that might've been, you know, a hundred people's tithings, right. Of 10, $20 for all I know that helped get the lawyer and the paperwork and the sponsorship for us to get and the plane tickets, right. These are all the little things that, that activists are doing right now. tirelessly and when they're like man it's just a drop in the ocean I'm like yeah but not for that one person it's everything for that one person yeah and thank you for putting words to that because I think it can it can be hard to know you know Mm -hmm. that translation that humanization um so okay, so it took you a year and a half, it sounds like, to get from Pakistan to the US. And then did you end up in Virginia? Yep. The the US government at that time, I think in some of its wisdom, it might have been their organization style, were putting Afghans in or in and around the same zip codes, um, which allowed for community, right? And again, I don't know if they were thinking that way or if it just was, hey here's where everyone's going. But what it did provide is that our neighbors were Afghan in the apartments near us and that a community could be built. And people don't think about this, but just to have your language and your food and and, and your etiquettes when you land is incredibly soothing. Yeah. To not just be thrown into like, you know, just a normal neighborhood and and be completely lost. So um, that's something that people can do now is to make sure and sponsoring people that they can collect and cluster uh, to, to help each other grieve and move forward. Yeah, it makes so much sense, right? Because it's such a shock and there's such a trauma in needing to leave one's country and homeland. So to have that support and infrastructure and familiarity would be you know, soothing in such a disruptive, traumatizing situation. Yeah. And, and I would love to, to speak to that trauma from the implications of an evacuation, right? I mean, for anyone making these choices, what I really want people to hold is, yes, evacuation is super important, but mental health and trauma healing afterwards 
is also important because what many people don't realize is that leaving is incredibly painful, right? For every family that leaves, I know my family, we left behind everyone, our family, our friends, um, our dreams, our hopes, like, so leaving a place that you think you may never return to is incredibly devastating. And because you land somewhere and you've got to learn English and get your driver's license and find a job and do all these things, it's really easy, I've noticed, for anyone in that position to just get to work because you have to. And I think one thing that would have made a huge impact on my family is if we had had some mental health services when we arrived. That was sorely missing. There was, here's your welfare check, here's a mattress, and good luck, right? And here are two young parents who are having trauma, who are doing the best they can in survival mode to make things work. And and what we're left with is this unhealed stuff from being in a war-torn country. And, and it continues to have impact if it's not healed. Yes. How, how do Afghan people and the Afghan culture view mental health care? And I'm sure it's different, like when you were growing up versus now, but mm-hmm. I'm always curious about that because that would be, if there was more of that, that would be so important right now. And then I'm also aware of cultural sensitivity. Absolutely. And like, how is it done inside of the Afghani culture? Um, Well, I think it's hard to tropicalize, right? Because throwing someone in with a stranger who's a therapist is completely out of the realms of what Afghans would do. Um, Traditionally, you know, you're in a village, you have village elders, you have what I guess we would call a medicine man or a shaman, but, but mainly an elder statesman of the group who's done enough living that you would go to for advice and and you grew up around him. You know, you were raised in the same neighborhood. He watched you grow up. So he knew you as it relates to your personality, how you're wired, your psychology. And so it is tricky, right? Because we can't just tropicalize the American model onto that. Mm -hmm. I think the best thing to do is to have Afghan therapists, coaches who have weathered the same journey um, be part of their adopting family. That would probably work the best. Like you're here. Now we are, we are family and you can come to me to grieve and to feel these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the cultural sensitivity that you speak of is really important, right? What we think should work for others is, it's kind of part of the problem we're dealing with right now. Yes, exactly. And have you in your work been able to connect with people who are like, have you been able to plug in in that way? Cause I imagine it's even hard to just know how to connect. Yeah. I mean, my entire family got sponsored once we got here. So, you know, every year was like bringing an auntie and her family or an uncle and his family and, 
So I know that rhythm and I know what they, on the ground, what they end up needing to learn to, to then go thrive in this country. Uh, right now, though, most of the work, the spreadsheets, the digital ninjas that are out there are working on evacuation. Yeah. And then, of course, there's spreadsheets of like who can be a sponsor, who can pick them up from the airport, who can drop them off at their new home, and who's going to be their ally for, let's say, six months to come. So a lot of that's happening. I haven't necessarily been in that work. I've been much more vocal here to to help just raise funds to continue doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are those, you know, those types of activities like picking up someone from the airport or committing to being their ally for six months, are those things that anybody who has a conscience and is available and in integrity can plug into to provide those types of services? Or is it better that that is done more in the Afghan community? Um, I would say both. It's kind of an and answer because we do need people who speak Dari and Pashto and Farsi to actually, um, you know, interface and, and support with communication. So that tends to be either interpreters or people who speak that mother tongue. Um, on the other end, though, you know, picking someone up from the airport and dropping them off can be done with care without knowing the language. And we, there are lists, you know, Google Docs has become, or Google Forms, I should say, has become the way right now of making sure that there's organization as, as people leave, where are they landing and how much are they going to be taken care of? Like all of that's happening behind the scenes right now. So yeah, to your question, like someone could offer their Airbnb or their apartment that's off of you know, on their land, or choose to pick up someone from the airport once, even once, still a big deal. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for just educating and informing us as listeners, um, because that's, these are small acts and yet they, together, they form a composite that's, can be very impactful. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Does it feel okay if we switch gears a little bit to talk about, because we're talking a lot about people getting out and that transition, which is so useful to know about. And I'm wondering about in Afghanistan right now, trying to understand like, who are the Taliban? Does it feel okay to go there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We have a small history lesson here, just really compact but important in terms of how this all got created. Mm -hmm. And this is me. I'm a civilian with an opinion, but I've also spent my whole life watching this happen. And and I'm looking through it as a coach and as someone who does trauma-informed coaching through the lens of of that as well. Um, 43 years ago with the Cold War, you know, the U.S., the CIA, essentially trained Afghan men to fight the Russians. The U.S. couldn't necessarily do that directly because of the Cold War. And so they had this wonderful idea for them of, hey, we'll train up these Afghan men who are on the front lines. We'll give them, you know, all the equipment and we'll train them up to our military level to fight the Russians. 
And it worked. In terms of that goal, it worked. However, what was left behind eight, nine years of war were injured men, traumatized men, um, widowed women, orphaned children, uh, you know, destroyed schools, mosques, hospitals, all of it. And the U.S. withdrew and left it. Like the job was done in their opinion. And from that birthed two different factions that we're seeing now. Um, what I call the Northern Alliance and, and the original Mujahideen who were for the people and for a fair government. That was one group. And the second group, the other faction was much more fundamentalist and religious and became the Taliban. And they want a very extreme view of Islam um, that I still question because most of them can't read how they even got to that assertion. But mm -hmm. those two factions came out of men in war, right? The, the mm -hmm. trauma, the toxicity, the corrosiveness of war. And what ensued after the Soviets left was a civil war uh, between the Northern Alliance, wanting to fight for the people, wanting a free country that wasn't radically um, modified, and the Taliban who wanted this really extreme version that, that didn't really gel with the Afghan people. And then, as we know, 9-11 happened. And the day before, the leader, the commander of the Northern Alliance was assassinated. So that had already created destabilization in that group that was fighting the Taliban. And three weeks later, the U.S. invaded to, to get their revenge. So, you know, fast forward 20 years, this is where we are, which is what I view as If, if I'm holding empathy, and I, and I do, while I don't condone what's happening, young boys, fatherless, born into a war zone, not going to school, with mothers who are probably deeply grieving in their widowed state, and essentially losing mother and father in that time. And, and they're offered, you know, like we have here, the opportunity to join a gang and there's these father figures, but they're, they're toxic masculine figures who are essentially crafting them to become killers. Right. So that's what I see with the Taliban. I see traumatized men who have gotten a really distorted view of women and Islam who have been indoctrinated since they were five to, to hate the West and to kill. And so I think they are deeply traumatized beings who are um, terrorizing others the way that they were terrorized as young boys. Thank you so much for breaking that down for us. It's, um, I can feel your empathy and, and also your intelligence and an ability to hold context and history and lineage, right? Like cause and effect, how one thing breeds another thing. And 
not being from Afghanistan myself and, you know, for any listeners who are from other contexts as well, it's just so impactful to have more context. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Just, you know, wanting, because I love this country. I love being a part of this American energy. I also want Western accountability. Like we, we co-created this, you know, we, we threw a country into war. We trained them, we left them, and we've left them again. And that does a lot to the human psyche. I mean, 40 plus years of war on on the daily is really hard on the nervous system. Like that's not, I don't even know what the right word would be. It's, it's brutal on the nervous system. Yeah. But what, and this may be, I'm sure there's so much range in view, but the Northern Alliance or people associated more with that faction of the, of the population. What is the sentiment around the U S decision to pull out right now? You know, it's, I don't quite know. I haven't seen enough as it relates to press conferences with them because they are, they're really mobilizing to, to fight, to build a resistance right now. Um, but they are very much against the Taliban regime of terrorism and brutality. And I think they're picking up where they left off, frankly, which was 20 years ago, civil war being interrupted by the U.S. coming in. Um, This is the first time in 20 years they're, they're banding back together. So it's an interesting time, right? Because their commander was assassinated the day before 9-11 and then all eyes were on Afghanistan but something is still there for them in terms of the hearts of those soldiers. I actually believe they have the know-how. They know these guys. They know the terrain. They know the culture. Um, they might be exactly what is needed to end this brutality. Because here's my take, right? Boys fear women. Like when we see the women hate happening, boys fear real men. And what I experience of the Taliban, and I look into their eyes, I just see traumatized, stunted boys parading around as these like monster men. But beneath that is a whole lot of fear and shame. And that's why they're so quick to react, to beat someone up, to kill someone. It's the, it's the trigger of the young part that has been so terrorized that it, they're reflecting outwardly. They're not going to hold up well with real men who have conviction, who are also saying, not on my watch, like no fucking way this is going to happen on my watch. So I'm curious to see how that unfolds. And um, as far as I'm hearing, like casualties are much higher for the Taliban as the Northern Alliance is, is making ground. So powerful to have your consciousness and perspective on this. And yeah, to to have both those fierce boundaries, that fierce love that you describe of like, this is not okay. And yet recognizing the roots, the seeds of the trauma that are causing the violence. And then, and then the pain that, that it requires violence to stop violence. Right. Absolutely. I mean, how do you make sense of that? Like, how do you, 
where does, how does that sit in your psyche and in your conscience? It's difficult because I have been, and I've identified as a pacifist my whole life. Um, And when my partner asked me, what do you need? You know, on day one, my response was snipers. And I, I had to really sit with the totality of that, that I am a pacifist and a spiritual activist and an advocate first and foremost. And the fierce mama bear in me was like, we need to take care of this, you know, and again, not wanting to condone violence. I wish there was another way. I'm a big believer in peace activism, in collaboration, in mediation, it doesn't feel possible with such unconscious human beings. And that's the tricky part. So I find it difficult. I'm expanding my range of love for myself because I, there is a part of me that's like, why don't we just have skilled snipers taking care of this so that everyone else can be safe. And it's, it's awkward to say that in public, but it's real. So yeah, stretching, stretching the edges of who I think I am to realize, wow, when it's, when it's really important, I can understand that's that, that wanting things to be protected through violence. Yeah. I, I so appreciate the awkwardness and the discomfort <laughs> and, and the re- realness too. I appreciate you going there of just like, no, most people in their hearts, nobody wants violence, but also having to make room for when it is necessary in order to protect or preserve something from a longer arc or a wider view. So yeah, I, I deeply appreciate the conundrum there. Yeah. Thank you. So I, I want to explore, you know, obviously, you know, my work centralizes around women and girls. And I think so many people that I'm having conversations with, I mean, they're concerned about the entire situation, but there's a lot of conversation about the women and the girls. And so I want to try to understand from your perspective, like are all women and girls now at extreme risk? Is there a difference of level of risk based on background and context or like, what do we need to know about the women and girls who are being left behind in Afghanistan or not even trying to leave because of their, you know, situation or privilege status? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's a tricky one because I, I do feel like all women are at risk when there are toxic masculine energies who, who have hatred for women, right? So there's there's that umbrella, which is like, yes, I think every woman's at risk to some degree, but the women at greatest risk are the ones who are the most free. They're the, the greatest threat to this paradigm the Taliban are trying to hunker down on, right? It's, it's women who are artists, athletes, journalists, scientists, teachers, even divorced women who have chosen to get away from an abusive relationship get their own apartment, um, live their own lives, which in the last 20 years was considered maybe a taboo, but still on the edge of allowance. Um, They're all at risk because free women is a huge threat to the Taliban's model. And they're not free themselves. So I don't think they want anyone to be free, much less women. So Right now, the evacuations, as it relates to women, 
are the athletes, the musicians, the artists, the journalists, those who, you know, as these door-to-door check-ins are happening, they're getting put on lists, right? And they're getting put on lists with a will-be-back kind of smirk. So it is a matter of time for them that something will, will happen. And I think what's most interesting about this, and again, this is coming from my psychological opinion, is these men are playing out their mother wound, right? Like when men have shit with women, i.e. their mom, they are going to take it out on other women. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing happen on an unconscious level. Um, that For a woman to be in her full vibrancy, wearing bright colors, playing music, enjoying her life, for that to be such a threat to these men, it's hard for me to understand. And I am still grappling with what kind of human is threatened by that. Oh, I have chills and it's just like my heart dropping into my stomach as I hear you share this. And, and I'm imagining just quite personally that though, like those are the people that your, your community, your family, your friends, that those are the women that you are most in contact with. Yeah. I mean, I worked, you know, on um, supporting a friend's film, which was about the female mountaineers. So I did a lot of the translations for that film and have another dear friend who trained the female cyclists, right? As a, as a paradigm shift of like women get to be free on bicycles and just the sheer efforts that they went through. I mean, women getting rocks thrown at them for being on a bicycle, for being free, like the madness of that. And yeah, the, the women that I know are the activists and advocates for those women. So it's, it's incredible to see, you know, I get the behind the scenes, Hey, these ones made it to Italy. These ones are on a plane. These ones just got out. So I'm seeing it happening and there are still some hiding in fear in, in incredible emotional distress because they're waiting to get out. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It, you know, it, I feel like it just puts so much in perspective you know, as, as a white woman in the United States, I feel like I'm part of, you know, and, and you're part of a similar community in like coaching psychology, trauma work conversations. We're talking a lot about liberation and freedom as women, but I think so much of it is usually intrapsychic. It's like how we're negotiating impacts in our own mind and definitely maybe the context of our lives, but it's such an extreme version of this dynamic that you're describing, you know, of the oppressor and the oppressed and how freedom threatens the oppressor. And it just, it's so exaggerated from what you're describing. Sure. Yeah. And I also want to hold from the lens of shadow work, which I do that, you know, it's, it is a bit of a mirror as extreme as it is, you know, I've gotten hate mail in the last two weeks here in America from privileged white boys telling me to go back to my country if I don't like it here for, for speaking up about what I think has been co-created by the U S. Um, and I think what, I think it was in the news yesterday. I don't want to get too political, but Texas overturned Roe versus Wade 
yeah. at midnight or something in, in the shadow of night. So we have it here. Women are still not treated as primary citizens of this country. Mm-hmm. It's not to the degree of wearing a burqa and not being able to go to school. But I, I would invite women to speak up here where they see oppression, however small, in their world. Um, I think it's going to take all the fierce feminine rising up to to say like, yeah, we're kind of we're d- we're done with how you guys roll, right? We're done with the patriarchy. Let's try union, right? Mm-hmm. Let's let's try bringing the gifts of both genders, both energies to our world. Yes, thank you for that. How, how is it for you when you receive hate mail like that? What's what is the impact? Where does that go in you? You know, I've never received it, which um, I'm surprised because I've written some pretty politically charged songs in the past. Um, but I, I'm I'm really excited about it because it means I'm I'm agitating, I'm stirring the pot, I'm making people think, hopefully, and. All it really does, you know, it it hits me for a minute, of course, that someone can be that unfathomably ignorant. And then again, it's transmuted and harnessed into action. I've, I've been posting them. So just to remind people, like we have little shit boy terrorists here in America. Yes. Who don't want a woman to have a voice and who think that, um, a voice different from theirs is a threat. So it might not be, like you said, that extreme level, but it is, it is happening here. Yeah. And in many ways, what we've seen over the last four, eight years, you know, it's, there are versions of the extremism. What we don't have is as much, you know, well, and maybe this is, you know, could be disputed, but, but the, my understanding of the amount of weapons and fighting and bombings and, that is going on in Afghanistan, but, but the seeds of the same hatred and intolerance and division of, you know, views and consciousness, we, we, we could easily have similar problems here. Yeah. And I'm holding it as as a certain level of entitlement and privilege that has gone unchecked. And so I don't blame anyone who's, who's spouting that. Um, Again, I'm looking at how this is a systemic problem that has been inherited by many. Yes. So it doesn't feel it too much different to me than over there. And I've heard people say, oh, really? So then you don't think it's worse over there? And it's like, but in essence, there's oppression everywhere for women. That is true. So I want to understand. So we've talked about the Taliban and sort of your perspective on, on the context in which they've re come into power. And I'm curious about the women and the girls associated with the Taliban. So, you know, spouses, children, aunties, friends, sisters, and like, and I realize this is a very big generalized question, but like what is going on in the minds and hearts of those women? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I I actually don't have intel there to know. Um, My sense is they don't get a say. And if they've been, again, like if we think of a basic abusive relationship, how empowered 
and how much of an advocate is a woman in that situation. So my sense is there's probably fear and terror there. And also just holding that many women have been forced into marriages with militants. So it's not even really a, a, a marriage per se. Yeah. It's servitude. Yeah. So it's like a completely different conversation than, you know, the activists and the advocates, the other women that you're more connected to in Afghanistan that you're describing. And I don't, I, I can't blame them because I, I see them as being in a hostage situation. So they are going to preserve their own lives. And I, I wouldn't expect anything less of them in that situation. Yes, absolutely. That they are just in self-preservation. Okay. I have several more questions. Um, and I'm just organizing my thoughts here. <laughs> um, you know, I'd love to actually just come back to you for a moment and the personal and, you know, listeners got to hear your professional bio at the beginning of this interview. And we've certainly touched on the many hats that you wear, but can you tell us about what brings you joy right now and sort of paint a picture of your life today as an adult woman, having made the journey, having lived in the U S for so long, like what is it now for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wake up to the Hudson river here in New York. So it's the first thing I see when my eyes kind of wake up and the joys of my day is really the service of my life. It's, having these kind of conversations with you. Um, it's coaching people to move through and heal their trauma so that they can live a fully expressed life. Um, I love that work. I love working with my clients. It brings me a great deal of joy to see people become more free. And anyone who does find me knows in their psyche, they're not as free as they could be. So that's where I'm a freedom fighter is through that kind of nurturing and challenge to them to, to be personally responsible for their lives. Um, music, of course, you know, as a songwriter and as a musician, the continued soothing that music brings, whether it's a ragey metal song or a tearful ballad, like I need to keep moving energy that way to, to continue feeling healthy. And nature, um, we live so close to mountains and trails that being out in nature is really super supportive. Yeah, and my, and my friends and family, like they continue to be a safe harbor and bring both joy and, and a welcoming of all emotions. So when I'm messy and I'm in, in that rageful place and, you know, my voice is really high and I'm leaving a message that sounds like, I'm a total train wreck. They're still like, yep, it's all welcome. And I get it. That kind of being seen is, is bringing great joy as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I love knowing that I can speak for what it looks like if you help a refugee. Right. I mean, I received political asylum. I got educated. I am a beneficial contribution to my society. And I give a shit and I want to do more. So it, it's a joy to also be like, hey, here's the flip side of the coin of what you might fear will happen. 
here's how helping someone means we really help ourselves. Mm. Oh, thank you so much for sharing all of those vignettes of your life. And I felt like I could see so many of them when you were speaking. And, <laughs> and it makes me so happy to know how much joy and love and creativity and freedom there is for you um, in your life. And, and I want to know how can we help? You know, I want to know for me personally, anybody who's listening to this, like, where would you direct us? What actions would you suggest? Um, please tell us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many resources. I'm absolutely happy to like, send you some links. I have on my Instagram, in my bio, I also have at least a dozen links of ways to help. So there is helping female cyclists evacuate. There's helping musicians evacuate. There's helping refugees land you know, safely here and, and have a welcoming face to see when they arrive after all their, their harrowing journeys. Um, there are continued efforts to, to get sponsorship, you know, so pro bono lawyers would be great. Anyone advocating for, um, through their government for the support of more refugees right? There's, there's call your senators, call the White House, donate. And I'm absolutely happy to send a link to make that easy for people as well. Yes, we will definitely put the links in the show notes um, for this episode. And what is your Instagram handle? Uh, it's Fittishta Coaching. Okay. And we'll put that as well. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, and so people can advocate on like the state and local level to try to sponsor and host more refugees. Is that right? Exactly. And also just helping this continue to breathe even after the new cycle changes to something else. Yeah. Um, it's really helping keep this alive so that people can be kept alive. Yes. And thank you for bringing that up um, because I, I think it's, it's such an issue that when we're not as personally connected to a problem or a crisis that, when it's out of the news, it's out of our own minds and hearts. And can you help inform us, like, what are the years ahead going to look like? And will people still be able to get out? Will they still be able to be sponsored? Like, just so we have context. Yeah, I have to say there's a great deal of uncertainty there, mm -hmm. right? There's there's the Taliban's, let's say, Twitter handle guy who, who says, oh, women can go to work and people can leave through the airport. And then there's the reports on the ground of, of people getting shot for trying to get to the airport and women being told they can't go back to work. So um, there's what the media narrative is portraying. And there is the reality that none of us are really getting the full scoop on. My hope is that the resistance, whether that's the Northern Alliance or the Afghan people, speak up and demand a free country and, and do the hard work of building that. And if that doesn't happen, I think it's going to be some really dark days for the country ahead, particularly under the rule of, of angry, toxic men. Yes. Yeah. And thank you for speaking to this piece of, of like, we, the verdict is not out yet. Has the Taliban changed much or not. And yeah, what gets conveyed on news channels versus 
the day-to-day on the ground experience of human beings and what, what that is. Yeah. And, and I would go as far as to say the verdict is in, as it relates to their actions, you know, as it relates to like, if an abusive boyfriend says, Hey, I'm sorry, I did that. I won't do it again. And they do it the next day. Verdict's pretty much out in that regard of um, they are doing really brutal, heinous things while saying that they won't. Okay. Yeah. So just to be clear there, it's, there's, there's no part of me that thinks they, that they've changed, but I think the one thing they've gotten good at is appearing more moderate to the global community. Okay. Thank you for clarifying and correcting me there because that, okay. So that is very clear. The verdict is out and, and it's, Maybe they just have a better PR campaign right now, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's an important thing for those of us who are not in Afghanistan, but in other countries and contexts to have our eyes wide open and to not be in any type of fantasy or false comfort that it's not this abusive, toxic situation. Yeah. And they've broken every agreement that they made with the U.S. about um, how this was going to go down. So I think we've collected enough evidence that um, we're we're looking at a terrorist regime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, the que- more of the question is how well the resistance can organize and how quickly they can mobilize in response to the terrorist regime. Exactly, and I really think this is the natural order of things. Right, it was disrupted twenty years ago with the the U.S. coming in with well intentions, I imagine. And it's picking up, in essence, at that place of the people of the land fighting for their country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And owning that and yeah. t- taking leadership and charge of that. Yeah, and empowering themselves in that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow. This has been so incredibly rich and heartfelt and informative I just can't thank you enough for the generosity of your time and, you know, and the gift of your voice here. Yeah. Thank you so much, Emma. I am so deeply touched by what I feel of your heart and what I feel of your conscience and how you're able to hold the space for some really tough conversations. I'm very grateful for your ability to to have this capacity and to be so willing to share this work and this knowledge with your audience. Thank you. You're so welcome. And it's, it's truly my honor and, you know, deep pleasure and privilege that, that I get to do this. So thank you for co-creating with me. Thank you. Such an honor to be with you. Yeah. So one final piece, um, if you could, just leave us with any final message, encouragement, you know, piece of wisdom around your understanding for women and girls. What would you most want us to hear? Mm. I have known Afghan women to be some of the strongest, most resilient women on the planet. So if there is any place in you that feels called to help, know that it will not go wasted in this situation. And these women and girls, they are rising up. 
and it's taking a, to me an immense amount of bravery to to protest in front of the Taliban and to leave without a burqa and to demand to go to school. I mean, this is beyond courageous. So knowing that they are putting their lives at risk for what they believe in, um, may we be courageous enough to support them. Like, again, people keep saying like, oh, it's just such a small drop in the ocean. It's like, but you know what? Two billion drops in the ocean is not nothing. Like, let's, yes. let's consider that our drop matters. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Today podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and take a moment to leave a rating and a review. The more five-star ratings this podcast gets, the more easily women around the world will be able to access this valuable information. Remember, we each have our unique role to play in this collective uprising for women all over the world. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself in this moment, there is a deep intelligence to your particular place in the wider web, and we need the specific experiences, insights, and gifts that only you carry. I am sending you my heartfelt strength and support for wherever you are on the journey, and I'll look forward to connecting again next week.